I'm Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I'd like to highlight some of the content from the July edition of the journal. I'd like to start with an article on napping. So the topic is, should we discourage daytime napping? Duration and quality of sleep affect child development and health with early childhood being a time in which sleep consolidates into night and napping ceases. Many factors influence sleep patterns and childhood sleep patterns have the potential to disrupt family functioning and child well-being. In this month's issue, Thorpe and colleagues report a systematic review of the evidence regarding the effects of napping on child development and health. 26 articles were included. They are heterogeneous in quality, observational study designs. Most of the findings were inconsistent. Cognition, behaviour, health impact. Probably because of the variability in ages and habitual napping status. The most consistent finding was an association between napping and later onset shorter duration and poorer quality night sleep. The evidence was strongest in children greater than two years. The authors highlight the absolute need for more data before specific advice is given. Lewis Wiggs discusses the findings and their wider implications in an accompanying editorial. It's interesting to reflect on what's normal. How should a nap be identified in terms of quantity, quality and timing? the heterogeneity of the individual, the influence of the family and environment, and multiple potential outcome measures of impact and therefore difficulties in studying. Certainly napping in young children is universal, and the question posed in the title of the editorial, Daytime Napping in Preschool-Aged Children, Is It to be Encouraged?, is appropriate. Ensuring children receive sufficient amounts of good quality sleep according to the individual needs of the child, remain the most important priority. The second article I'd like to cover relates to too many digits, the presentation of numerical data. This is very interesting. We've all been frustrated reading numbers to too many decimal places. The simplest being digital scales in the outpatient clinic where measurements are probably not accurate to more than 10 grams, although the implication of the weight recorded is that the accuracy is much greater. In an excellent leading article this month, Editor's Choice, Tim Cole takes us back to first principles to discuss this and provide sensible, pragmatic guidelines for the presentation of numerical data. It's interesting and it's helpful to work through. Remember the difference between decimal places and significant figures. The number of significant figures, or the number of significant digits, is the number of all digits ignoring the decimal point and ignoring all leading and some trailing zeros. Data should be rounded up appropriately, not too much and not too little. Clearly, for example, 22.68 with a 95% confidence interval of 7.51 to 73.67, is more effectively and meaningfully written as 23, 95% confidence interval, 7.5 to 74. 
The various reporting tools are discussed. Significant figures should be considered rather than just decimal places. The general principle is to use two or three significant digits for effect sizes and one or two significant figures for measures of variability. There is a helpful summary table included with the recommendations given for different scenarios. The third article I'd like to cover relates to the prevalence of severe childhood obesity in England. Severe childhood obesity is associated with a wide array of serious, immediate and long-term health problems and may require specialist input for consequent medical issues and weight management. Els and colleague review the rates of severe obesity, that's BMI greater than the 99.6 centile of the British UK 90 charts. Rates are very high, 1.9% of girls and 2.3% of boys aged 4 to 5 years. 2.9% of girls and 3.9% of boys aged 10 to 11 years. Prevalence is variable, being highest in children living in the most deprived areas with a two to three-fold variability, and higher in black ethnic groups. Support and provision for this group need to be planned if we're going to impact to try and reduce morbid obesity rates and their long-term impact at an individual and population level. The fourth article I'd like to cover relates to why do we treat children of Jehovah's Witnesses differently from their adult parents. This is a significant, emotive and difficult issue, particularly when the clinician is faced with a patient who needs blood but refuses it for religious or other reasons. In a thought-provoking leading article, Robert Wheeler explores these issues using case law to illustrate and very much highlight the different issues in children compared to adults, and as such the article is very relevant to us as paediatricians. The decision of a competent adult to refuse blood is legally binding on doctors. This is not the case in a child or young person under age 18 years, when the law will no longer defer to a parent's wishes or religious beliefs if such deference will mean that the child is not treated in accordance with his best interests. This clearly needs to be managed carefully and with consideration of alternative options and after social care and legal advice. The issues and some of the practicalities are complex, even more so during adolescence, and the article is of relevance to how we manage these difficult situations when blood transfusion or other life-saving treatment are needed and for complex reasons consent is not forthcoming. I'd like to finish with an article which relates to bed sharing and sudden infant death. Bed sharing increases the risk of sudden infant death in infants less than three months. The effect is most profound in infants less than one month when there is a five-fold increase in risk of sudden infant death syndrome. The mechanism, however, is not clearly defined. Heyman and colleagues review the accidental deaths during sleep as a cause of sudden infant death in infancy in New Zealand. 48 cases over 7 years, 
reflecting 0.1 per thousand live births. Deaths were due to overlay in 30 cases or wedging in 18 with 71% in a bed sharing situation. Of the overlay group, eight were by a mother while breastfeeding, four by a sibling and 17 by a parent. In the wedging group, 10 were between a sleeping surface and wall or broken cot, six between a cushion and couch, and two between a sleep surface and bedding. The authors conclude these are potentially preventable deaths, particularly if bed sharing is avoided, faulty or if inadequately constricted cots are avoided, and extra attention is paid to the safety of sleep arrangements, particularly if ad hoc or temporary. In an accompanying editorial, Volpe and colleagues discuss infant sleep-related deaths, why do parents take risks? The editorial is provocative, discussing these issues in the context of other factors, recent guidance from NICE, and the need to inform parents about the risks and benefits in order to help them make the best decisions for them and their children. My name is Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. Thank you for listening. Please refer to the journal website for the full articles discussed.